Hiya, this is the fourth? Where's the fifth? Yeah, it's four. Oh no, it is, is it four? I think it's four. The latest installment of, <laughs> I'm covered. The latest installment of Reading with Randos where we read uh, C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm Job and I'm still, still starting to appreciate Lewis. <laughs> Yep, I'm Trip. Go ahead, yeah. Sorry, uh, I'm I'm Trip. I've been a lifelong Lewis fan, and uh, A Grief Observer is one of my favorite of his stuff. So, yes, and I'm Sarah. Grew up on Lewis, especially Narnia and whatnot, but have not read this one previously. So, yeah. Okay, uh, like each time, I will read the last paragraph that we finished on. It isn't only the boys either. An odd byproduct of my loss is that I'm aware of being an embarrassment to everyone I meet. At work, at the club, in the street, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate it if they do, and if they don't, some funk it altogether. R has been avoiding me for a week. I like best the well-brought-up young men, almost boys, who walk up to me as if I were a dentist, <laughs> turn very red, get it over, and then edge away to the bar as quickly as they decently can. Perhaps the bereaved ought to be isolated in special settlements, like lepers. And the uh, first episode of this one, uh, first paragraph of this episode is, to some I'm worse than an embarrassment. I'm a death's head. Whenever I meet a happily married pair, I can feel them both thinking one or other of us must someday be as he is now. At first, I was very afraid of going to places where H and I had been happy, our favorite pub, our favorite wood. But I decided to do it at once, like sending a pilot up again as soon as possible after he's had a crash. Unexpectedly, it makes no difference. Her absence is no more emphatic in, the, in those places than anywhere else. It's not local at all. I suppose that if one were forbidden all salt, one wouldn't notice it much more in any one food than in another. Eating in general would be different every day at every meal. It is like that. The act of living is different all through. Her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Her absence is like the sky spread over everything. It's such a beautiful sentence, and it, it so encompasses that it just, yeah, it touches everything he does. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I again, like I, I've said before, my experience with grief, I mean, obviously I've had them, but it hasn't been to this extent. And, but I, I will say that I've felt that way towards others who are going through something really tragic. It's like, you don't, you don't know how to talk to them or to relate to them. So like I, and I, but I also understand how they are feeling the same way. Like, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've, I've tried to open up, uh, open up dialogue with some, like I, we have several friends in church in our church who have been through tragic things and, we actually went through a grief, um, kind of a training 
uh, class at one point. And so I was just, I was like, what do, what do we do as the people who are on the outside? Like, do we, do we ask you how you're doing? Do you want us to keep you accountable? Do you need our input? And, and mostly what I have heard from them is just being there. And I think he talked about that earlier in the book. It's just, just sitting, Mm -hmm. just listening, um, kind of going about your, your own life and yet still being present. Um, or even just a, just a simple, I don't know, just a simple hello. And how are you doing? I mean, or I understand, or I see you, or, you know, you're still a person. <laughs> you're not a leper. <laughs> yeah. I wonder whether or not that's why sending flowers became a thing mm. um, for something that happened to people. Um, you know, something bad happens, and so we send flowers. Um, I almost wonder if that's like a, a way for us to avoid actually having to, like, we're acknowledging it without having to have that kind of awkward interaction that he's to, yeah, of interaction. Like, I'm sorry. It's easier to write, I'm sorry, our thoughts are with you, or whatever, and a card and send some flowers to someone's house than it is to actually ask about it or like engage with them and be like, Hey, I want, I want to know what's going on with you. Like that kind of awkwardness um, you can kind of avoid. And then because you have all these other questions, like how close am I to this person? Really? Like, mm-hmm. am I, am I the kind of person that they want to have this kind of conversation with? Or, you know, it, you have all these kind of like gray area questions. And I, I wonder whether or not that's why flowers became a thing. It's a way of, of acknowledging it without actually actually having to have that calm that that awkward conversation that lewis is describing Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i mean even things like i know people in our church and communities have organized meals for people and that has been something that's meaningful it's just like you don't you don't feel like cooking or you know doing those day-to-day things when you just do need to go through those stages of grief and so you know they'll have this whole setup where families will bring a meal I mean, it, I mean, the families that have gone through tragic things, I mean, they've had meals for one, maybe even two months after some of those mm-hmm. things taken care of that they can throw in the freezer and just not have to deal with that. And that, I think, is a really practical, meaningful thing mm-hmm. that it kind of gets you over that awkwardness, too, because you can you can kind of gauge when you stop by whether they're they want to have a conversation. You're making yourself available, but you're not. It's like you're there for a purpose so you can drop it off and leave if you need to that sort of thing. That is so nice. Have you not experienced that? No. Huh. No. Yeah, I wonder if it's like a I wonder if it's like an American church culture thing. Yeah, we, we do it for we baby. we do it for a, yeah, a baby a baby's born. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um mm-hmm. no. uh, so you do it for a baby's born or yeah, like an unexpected death or anything mm-hmm. else like that, then then you would you get together with the church and then schedule, hey, we want two weeks worth of meals. Everyone sign up and you're gonna bring it this day and I'm gonna bring it this day and that kind of stuff. So Oh, that's really great. That's yeah, that's really nice to hear that people do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, shall we do the next paragraph or? Sure. Yeah. Cool. But no, that is not quite accurate. There is one place where her abscess comes locally home to me. And it is a place I can't avoid. I mean, my own body. It had such a different importance while it was the body of H's lover. 
Now it's like an empty house. But don't let me deceive myself. This body would become important to me again, and pretty quickly, if I thought there was anything wrong with it. So self-aware. And it's also, <laughs> a, so also a self-criticism. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it, I can just imagine him sitting at his desk writing this, you know, just kind of almost scolding himself for having the thoughts he has in his grief. yeah no self-aware is a good way of putting it that he like even if his he, he won't let his grief kind of overwhelm uh how much he knows himself um in that sense like he, he's not he's not going to let himself uh you know go too far down that road that you know oh this thing doesn't matter anymore and he's like oh no you you know it does and you know that you will you will um you will change your mind really soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's something that, yeah, it, it is weird to, to think. I mean, a lot of people don't do that, right? A lot of people think, Oh no, this will, this will never matter again. Or, you know, I'll never get over this and that kind of stuff. And he's like, no, I will. Um, it's uh, I can't, I can't even fool myself even while I'm kind of in the depths of this. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, it's just amazing how self, protecting we are i don't know if either of you have gone through any major health issues i know job you've had diet stuff and all of that but yeah but i went through a a period where i just had some really unusual symptoms that made me afraid for my life like i didn't know what was going on and it was like i couldn't it was it was a similar feeling in, in what he's describing about not it's like not being able to to go anywhere or do anything because it's just this I, I think once you have a diagnosis of something you can you're able to kind of relax and okay we're going to figure out a plan but it was such it was it was such a strange period of time because it was it was literally chaos because there were these things happening to me that I had no idea what they were and I was just frozen like I couldn't function during the day I couldn't I couldn't feed my kids. I couldn't do anything because that's all I was thinking about. So that, that sentence, um, my body would become important to me again. And pretty quickly, if I thought there was any, anything wrong with it, I can, I can understand that. (laughs) Yeah. And and it also, I mean, to Lewis, it seems to at least indicate an awareness of, of the need for Mm self-preservation. And now, of course, I don't know if this is the case because Lewis was a Christian, but he doesn't seem to entertain the idea of of uh, suicide either in his grief. Which, yeah. So then my, my question to myself is, would he have if he wasn't a Christian or is it just not the way he thought? But I, I don't know. I would, there's no way of knowing to know that probably. Yeah, I think Paul tweeted out um, kind of a, something that he was thinking about regarding uh, kind of homeless people or people that are really in, in bad straits, like financially and that kind of stuff. And so his question was like, why, why isn't the suicide hate rate higher than it is for that group of people? Mm. Than the, the, you know, the, the normal population and that kind of stuff. And it's significantly higher. But I guess I think he was asking, well, 
one could see that it should maybe it should be even higher and it's it's curious a little bit that it's not if it's just kind of you know if we're just looking at from the outside the the state of this person's life and that kind of stuff um and so one of his hypotheses was you know uh you know is it because like you're you're just so focused on surviving kind of day to day like my next meal where am i going to sleep and all those kind of things that you don't this kind of existential dread that drives other types of suicide, you don't really get there because I, I'm just worried about where I'm going to sleep tonight, what meal I'm going to have and that kind of stuff. And so you don't get to some of the existential, what is my life meaning really mean and that kind of stuff that I think some other people that struggle with that might, might question. Um, I don't know. I didn't know what you guys thought about that. Um, I had to look up some statistics after he tweeted that because I, I didn't, I wasn't sure what the, what the actual suicide rate was, but. No, but that, I remember Paul Van der saying that, and that was a very interesting uh, thought that, that hadn't crossed my mind. Another thing that just popped into my head is that H died of cancer and she was basically taken away. And then it's also kind of an insult to her to then take your own life. Mm -hmm. Uh, whether you think that is uh, something that is, whether you think suicide is, is permissible, then to say, well, you might as well keep living because the other person didn't get to. Mm. So, hmm, I hadn't thought of that before. Uh, we can go to the next one, uh, I guess. Okay. Cancer and cancer and cancer. My mother, my father, my wife. I wonder who is next in the queue. Yet H herself dying of it and well, excuse me, and well knowing the fact, said that she had lost a great deal of her old horror at it. When the reality came, the name and the idea were in some degree disarmed. And up to a point I very nearly understood, this is important. One never meets just cancer or war or unhappiness or happiness. One only meets, meets each hour or moment that comes. All manner of ups and downs. Many bad spots in our best times, many good ones in our worst. One never gets the total impact of what we call the thing itself. But we call it wrongly. The thing itself is simply all these ups and downs. The rest is a name or an idea. It seems sort of stoic almost. Yeah, it does. It does have kind of a uh, stoic or like a Buddhist like tinge to it, right? Yeah, and it kind of makes me think of Peterson's Rule Twelve, like you just meet the the each hour or moment that comes, and you try to deal with that. But you never meet the, the thing, the cancer, the experience. I mean, you, you have cancer at a moment. I, I, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> personally, I yeah. haven't had that sort of hardship. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, it just seems like he's saying it's one of those, one of those things. It's just these things happen and it's one of the bad, you know. Um, it's almost like, I don't know, 
like if you could if you could interact with with cancer um as a as a person or as a persona it might it might be easier to understand the meaning of it or something and instead it's it's just it's always filtered through um you know just something that happens to us i don't know yeah the, it's always the experience of the thing mm -hmm. i wonder how age lost a great deal of her old horror at it if that was just just being being dulled by by the experience like eventually it's just yeah i have cancer this is the new state of being and i don't know how i would deal with it if i would if i would be able to stoically resign myself to it i guess i'd find out yeah i feel like i would i have more trouble seeing seeing someone go through it than going through it myself i think that i could see how someone could reach that point where you're just you kind of made peace with it um you know at this point you probably you fought against it so long right and there's a certain exhaustion and that kind of stuff you know that that goes along with it and then at some point you kind of like resign yourself okay this is this is going to happen um and you can see how you're like okay there's a, there's a certain relief i feel like in just kind of giving up the struggle against something else even if that thing is still going to end up winning you're just like okay i'm not i'm not gonna let this like um be the totality of my existence or the take all of my mental energy and that kind of stuff in a way that where you were hoping you were going to beat it um might right um, you still have that hope. And so it takes so much of your energy and your thoughts and that kind of stuff. Like, how am I going to do this? When am I going to know all those kind of things? And there, there's probably like a certain relief in just saying, okay, that's, you know, it's not good news, but at least like, you know, so it's like, you know, Sarah was saying like, just having the diagnosis, like knowing what's going on and that kind of stuff. There's a certain amount, even though it may not be good news, the diagnosis, like there's a certain amount of relief from just like knowing what's going to happen. Um, even if you don't really like what you found out yeah well and i've heard of people even after having surgery having tumors cancerous tumors removed that they've actually wanted the tumor to, to keep it so they can yeah. like see it's a this physical thing it's like it i mean it, it reminds me of just like you're meeting the cancer it's like okay mm -hmm. right here, here we are <laughs> yeah who's gonna who's gonna win here and um you know and and then if if the mm -hmm. cancer does then it's like all right i i come from my background is is tainted with a lot of like healing prosperity word of faith type type stuff so um a lot of my childhood was spent with the attitude that um you know the churches i was in at that at that stage it was like if if something is happening to you it's because you know you don't you don't have enough faith you're saying the wrong words like you're speaking this thing into existence almost and that if you know if if, if everything was was god's will you was god's perfect will this wouldn't be happening to you that sort of thing um and then i actually kind of i, th I thought that part of my past was behind me but then it ended up being a kind of a big issue in in our church a couple a couple of years ago as well 
And so at that point, I really dug into what do I think about like healing? Do I, do I believe that this is something that still happens? Do I think that, you know, it's all in our minds and, and, you know, should we just have this sort of stoicism, like face, face things that, that, that come and, you know, try and make, make through, um, make it through the best we can. Um, and I, and through that process, I came across, um, this message by this Orthodox priest out in California his name is Father Josiah Trenum, and he was talking about the sacrament of healing in the Orthodox Church, and I don't know what it's like in, in other traditions. Um, I haven't explored that thoroughly, but he was saying how they have this, this service of um, a sacrament of healing, and as you're coming into this, this um, you know, to be prayed for, it's like you're not necessarily expecting the cancer to go away, but it's this dedication of the cancer to Christ. So in, in essence, you're, you're uniting whatever is, is ailing your body with Christ's suffering. So it's like you're transforming whatever the suffering is into something that can be um, useful and positive. And to me, that was so powerful because it almost makes it like, you know, whatever happens, we still can win. It's like, you know, it, the 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 beauty that I've seen come through people's sufferings that I feel like have done that very thing has been so impactful to me. So I just think if that is the case and something tragic happens to me, if I get cancer, if a child dies or whatnot, to have that, I'm I'm uniting this with Christ's suffering. He he has um, you know, he's experienced the depth and breadth of anything that I could ever experience. And his suffering was transformed into glory. My suffering can be transformed into glory as well. And it can start right now. It's not like in some future life, it can start immediately here. Um, so I don't know what y'all think about that, but. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that particular um, sacrament in the, in the Orthodox church. I wonder, yeah, it's not a Catholic sacrament. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that. That's I, I like that idea. Um, uh -huh. to be honest, I I didn't. Uh, yeah, I I grew up, you know, kind of conservative Presbyterian, so we didn't have the uh, the healing stuff and that kind of yeah. thing. Like you pray, like it's it's weird because you would pray for someone who was sick and you would hope for a miracle and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't like a if it doesn't happen, it's because of the lack of faith of the people right. experiencing right. suffering or like we didn't have that kind of charismatic bent to it so i never really had that hang up it's more like pray and maybe god will do something but uh it's not guaranteed and it certainly doesn't necessarily have to do with you uh really just not believing enough uh that was that always that's my my wife kind of grew up uh, like in the charismatic um background and so she had some of that and the speaking in tongues and that kind of thing but um it, it was very different for me so that that's interesting i'll i'll read more about um you said uh, uh what was the the priest's name? Father? Father Josiah Trenum. Josiah Trenum. Okay. Yeah. I'll look that up. That, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, like that. I mean, I can send you the, the YouTube link that I found in that talk. I thought it was really, it just, it's like, I mean, I, I, I've struggled with when to ask for prayer or even feeling like I should ask for prayer. It's like, well, if things are going to happen the way that they are. Why? Like, what's the point? What's the point of it? Um, and that, I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, so that, that perspective, it's like, okay, so it doesn't really matter the circumstances, whatever comes at me, they can be 
can be transformed in a very proactive and tangible way. So it's like it's still something is happening, whether or not the physical healing occurs now or not. Um, it's it's doing something, yeah. I mean, you see this with Jesus, though, even when he's praying, you know, he's asking for something, but then he's also saying, but, you know, if not, thy will be done kind yeah. of thing. So, like, I think that we're still called to pray and ask for what it is that we want mm-hmm. um, and that kind of stuff, but then also to resign ourselves that ultimately that may not be God's will. And mm-hmm. the more important thing is to submit to God's will. Mm-hmm. So you see, you know, Jesus in Gethsemane right? You know, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but if not, your will be done, right? Um, in the Lord's Prayer, you see very similar things, but so I still think that we should ask for it, but yeah. then also I like the idea of kind of, uh, of it being a sacrament to say, okay, but if not, I'm still going to make this thing holy. This still is going to be a, rede- a redeemed thing, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to count that they, uh, an unanswered prayer or a loss if it doesn't get answered in the way that I want it to. Right. And that's the thing, the way that you want it to, maybe your prayer is answered. It just happens in a different way. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Job, any thoughts? Uh, (laughs) Debating myself (laughs) that I should engage. I always get nervous when, when things like prayer and disease, um, are mentioned in the same sentence mm-hmm. because I understand. Was, I understand that as yeah. well. Like it's <laughs> so I, I got the impression from how you described the sacrament in the Orthodox Church that oh God, I'm going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> it seemed fairly pragmatic. Yeah, uh, I mean, to a certain degree, for sure. I mean, it, it's you hinted at it, Trip, because there is this idea of you know if you just pray hard enough, you know, and like pray harder, Simba, maybe then your dad will get up again, you know, just pray harder, and and it's ah, uh, I have words and thoughts about that. In my church, you can um, ask for a um, a prayer, and then it gets included in the final prayer that the pastor performs. Uh, before we get the blessing. Uh, I think that's a fine approach. And, and, and yeah, Sarah, I get what you're saying about, well, well, should you pray because things are going to happen as they do? Yeah, that kind of hints at determinism, right? Yeah, and, and really I mean, <laughs> I, I don't really, I mean, I, I don't really know what I think about all of that. I don't know that I ever will (laughs) as far as like, I've come to the consensus that it's, it's both, you know, it's, it's God knows and we have free will somehow that works out. Um, Yeah. I mean, you see both of those in the scriptures too, right? Yeah. People, people ask for prayers and God changed his mind. Right. It says that. Right. It also says things like, don't fool yourself. I, God do not change um, kind of thing. And so like, (laughs) like, yes, we have, time describing God because it's fundamentally different kind of thing than we are. And so, um, so yes, I, I'm going to go with both. 
God doesn't change his mind and yet God does change his mind. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm large. I can take multitudes. Yeah. yeah I, I had that same problem with, because it then quickly turns into the, into the, well, you can pray and maybe, maybe then the, the cancer will go away. But how did the cancer get there? I mean, it, it's just such a, well, who did that? And, and that turns well, to all these, well, I mean, but that's the thing. And this is one of the, uh, this is something that came up with my chat with Paul is uh, Paul used the, the example of Lazarus dying. Um, mm-hmm. And he talks about how Jesus kind of set that up mm-hmm. um, because like they were asking Jesus, come hurry, he's sick, all this kind of stuff. And he just like takes his sweet time getting there. Um, and this is Jesus. Like he knows what's going to happen. He kind of did the whole thing. And then he's like, now, but now he's sad. And then he, you know, <laughs> raised from the dead and everything else like that. And so you're like, well, what, what dude? Like, yeah, who put the cancer there? Who put the cancer there? Yeah. Maybe the same God that's going to take it away once you ask for it or not. And maybe that's just as well too. You don't, you know, you don't get to choose. God's, God's not as, I think that that's one of those things is that the, the charismatic, like if you prayed hard enough, if the perfect will of God happened, then, you wouldn't have cancer and that kind of stuff. And I don't know. I read the Bible and I'm like, I, that's not, I don't get that impression actually. Um, I have a hard time squaring that both with my own life and then also reading the Bible. Uh, yeah. Not a cute fuzzy lion. Not at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, he's a lot. He's Aslan, right? Um, you know, that's one of the things that um, uh, Aslan the lion, they, you know, he goes and, you know, uh, I forget, who was it in the story that wanted to take a drink from the pool? Um, and, uh, you know, he wanted kind of an assurance that Aslan, uh, he or she, I can't remember which character it was, but wanted assurance that Aslan was safe and, uh, you know, wasn't going to attack and that kind of stuff. And Aslan's like, no, you can drink if you want to, but I'm not giving you any guarantees. That, that He's not a cute fuzzy lion. It's that kind of a lion. That one's that's both good and dangerous. And yeah. so that's, that's, not, that's not a comfortable place for us to be. Mm-hmm. I think Mr. Is it Mr. or Mrs. Beaver that tells? Was it Lucy? She asked if he's a safe lion in in uh, Lion yeah. the Witch in the Wardrobe. Right. Yeah. Says, safe. Heavens no. <laughs> <laughs> but he's good. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, since this episode was kind of on cancer, there was it, it reminded me of of somebody who is no longer with us. Uh, Peter Hinchens is a Belgian computer programmer. He made a zero MQ, uh, the messaging library. And he had a, uh, he had, he had survived cancer before and he came back, I believe. And they couldn't, they couldn't fix it. Well, they couldn't, they, well, you know what I mean? Uh, and he said, don't tell me that I'm fighting. Don't tell me that I shouldn't give up. Excuse me. That's pointless. That's that there is no such thing as fighting or giving up in this thing. You're just doing what you can. And it, yeah, he, he just, he just, he approached it fairly stoically. He made sure all the things for his kids were in order. He threw a huge party where basically everybody was invited. And he says, whether I'm still alive by then, we're still going to have the party, even if I'm dead. And, and, there was a huge party and people brought things and and at some point he 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 said goodbye he said i have no regrets and since he was in belgium he could uh, he could be euthanized so eventually he he decided to to well to end it and 
Well, you you can disagree whether whether he should have, but I I do. I I could empathize with the way that he said, "Don't don't don't treat this as something that I can just fight harder and fight harder," because it's not. It's 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 this process, this 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 malignant growth, and well, we're going to do what we can. Mm-hmm. And sometimes trying to fight those things so viciously, you end up losing your quality of life. And I mean, for me, it's like I. I'd rather have a shorter life and be able to enjoy it more than just be miserable and stuck in a hospital trying to trying to fight something um, like that. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Being Mortal, which is a fantastic book. It's all about death and dying and the end of life, which sounds incredibly morbid, but it's actually a very thoughtful philosophical approach to how to how to deal with the end when it comes. And it talks a lot about elderly, but the the man who wrote it what is his name? Um, Gawandi is his last name. He's an Indian physician. And he, so he has his roots in a, in a more traditional background and how they, how they deal with, with um, elderly versus like the nursing home situation or um, I don't know, but I, I just think of people in, in stages of life and it just is, it's gross. Like no one wants to be around people who are in a nursing home or, um, you know, at the, at the end of their life. And so he, he talks through um, just what it all means and what's worth it, like what you should actually try to do. And um, it, it's written in a, in a story form. It's, yeah, it's a really amazing book if, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Being mortal? Being mortal. Mm-hmm. It's a really easy read. I listened to it on Audible. It, mm-hmm. he, he just, he has a fantastic way with words. Is it religious? No. No. I'm, I'm sort of reminded now. I'm just thinking of people. Uh, my my wife's father uh, <clears throat> died of lung cancer. Um, way back when, 1997, uh, she lost both her parents at a pretty young age, and um, her father died over the span of years, and. So they would eventually had like he had only like this tiny part of lung left. They had taken everything else out, but they couldn't stop the cancer. And at some point, you just you're just just slowly suffocating. And he got morphine because that makes it easier to breathe. And at some point, you know, he could hardly just still breathe and. Doctor winked at him and said, well, here's your morphine pump. You can give as much as you need to breathe through yourself. I've taken off the limit. And uh, there you go. And then he kind of just could control his own passing by not having to eventually suffocate to death. And yeah, and then when, when, whenever, whenever I hear... Uh, what do you call those arguments that against euthanasia? And I, I don't want to turn this into a debate of euthanasia, but then I always have to think of that because, well, choking to death or because that's inevitable with having this tiny mind of lung left that maybe will last another week or kind of having the own control of how you, you'll go through drifting away on morphine overdose. Yeah. 
Sorry, I was just going to say he addresses that really well in, in the book. And I think this Atul Gawande um, is his name in Being Mortal. And his he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it, but he talks about, basically he says it shouldn't be the rule, but there are except there should be exceptions. Mm. And I, I, I think I, I kind of would agree with that. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard because our, our, our kind of medicine and our capabilities have, have gotten good enough that we can keep people alive that mm -hmm. maybe we shouldn't have maybe yeah. maybe we should like and not to like sound like you know harsh about it but like maybe we're we're not doing anyone any favors we're like we're introducing like an artificial life to someone that's full of pain and suffering and all this kind of stuff with no hope of a recovery whereas even decades ago you know even like 50 years ago that wouldn't have even been an option um, they they would have just passed away before they even got to this point, and so I think that I think in addition to having the the euthanasia conversation, like we should have I think a broader conversation about just how we administer medicine in general, and is it is you know are we are we really just introducing pain into people's lives and that kind of stuff, or should we are are we like in denial about being mortal? I guess is my question. And we're just like medicine's going to keep me alive forever, and so we're going to keep doing everything I can to to stay. But then we end up getting someone to an end of a line that they don't want to live anymore. Actually, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think that was that was my thought. It's just like I, it's hard for me to to draw a hard line, whereas I think maybe it was a little bit easier um, and and uh, past. Uh, you know, centuries maybe, um, where it was more like suicide than euthanasia, um, because we're we are introducing something um, into the mix that wasn't there before, and I think that I think we have to have a conversation just about that. Um, I, I don't have like a, a hard and fast rule about it. But I, I do. Yeah, the modern science part is interesting because well, we extend lives. But we also, I mean, without that same modern science, I wouldn't have lived. Like I, mm -hmm. I was told, I was yeah, told exactly. So correct. Yes. No, I, I think that there's, there's, there are pros and cons to it. I'm not saying it's fully bad and that kind of stuff. I just think that we're not nearly as judicious about it. And I think that doing, making a blanket, like do everything you can to survive is probably not the, as long as possible. And like I said, it's probably not the right, uh -oh. um, probably not the right attitude. Like I still eat bacon and maybe, maybe it shaves like a couple months off my life, but I'm cool with it. Um, but, uh, then I, yeah, I think the constant each, and I don't think we can make a blanket rule about it. I think we need to be more thoughtful. Well, again, than that. I'll plug but, the book one more time. Cause those, those topics are addressed very well. Oh, yeah. I'm going to read it now. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. We can uh, try another one. We got about uh, 20 minutes left. Okay. It is incredible how much happiness, even how much gaiety we sometimes had together after all hope was gone. How long, how tranquilly, how nourishingly we talked together that last night. And yet, not quite together. There's a limit to the one flesh. You can't really share someone else's weakness or fear or pain. What you, may, what you feel may be bad. It might conceivably be as bad as what the other felt though I should distrust anyone who claimed that it was, but it would still be quite different. When I speak of fear, I mean the merely animal fear, the recoil of the organism from its destruction, the smothery feeling 
the sense of being a rat in a trap. It can't be transferred. The mind can sympathize, the body less. In one way, the bodies of lovers can do it least. All their love passages, passages have trained them to have not identical, but complementary, correlative, even opposite feelings about one another. I sometimes totally butcher words. <laughs> it's a difficult paragraph. Yeah. I don't even have any notes because I probably did, couldn't think of any. I like this. I, I do like the sentence, the mind can sympathize the body less. Um, I think that we over, at least in kind of my tradition, we overemphasize the like mental aspects of our faith, like the rules, the, the theology, like the, you know, those kind of things and whatever. And we, we underemphasize uh, some of like the sacraments, like the physical things that we do. And I think that's to our detriment. And that's one thing that I do like about like the Orthodox church and the, Catholic church and that kind of thing is that there is more like a physical participation, not just a mental belief structure, but a physical participation in the thing that we're doing. And that's, what's important about communion and everything else. And so I think it's a deep recognition that like, yeah, we, like you understand things better when you act them out, when there's some kind of bodily experience that you're having and not just a thought. Um, and so when I say the mind can that's right like but it's more intellectual it's more like i know this person's in pain i feel bad about it but experiencing it like physically that physical pain of having cancer being sick and that kind of stuff i can feel bad when my wife has a cold but it's very different than what i feel like when i have a cold um and same thing with this like i i like that i i like that sentence because it, it's a deep recognition that we we're not just brains um kind of puppets over our bodies like the body itself can't empathize the same way that your mind might be able to um, so that's what I thought about in that paragraph. It's interesting when he's talking about, he says the bodies of lovers can do at least. I, well, <laughs> this is a, you know, just a, a superficial thing, but um, I probably have the hardest time sympathizing with my husband when he's sick. <laughs> and I wonder if that, you know, extends into, like, I mean, like he's saying, extends into something that is even, you know, more tragic and serious. I don't know. I don't know. It'd be, I, I've never thought about it in that way before, but I have to really work at sympathizing with my husband. It's more like, okay, let's, let's get over this, you know, let's move That's on. That's so funny. That's so funny. <laughs> my, my wife, my wife and I have the exact same relationship when I get sick um, <laughs> is that she does not care. And I'm the worst sick person in the history of the world. I, I am a, I'm a three-year-old and I can do nothing um, for myself. Like Maybe a male, male trait. <laughs> yep. I get man sick for sure. Yeah. I really appreciate my wife all of a sudden. Well, <laughs> my dear folks. Yeah. I, I maybe, it's a, maybe it's I an American thing. I don't Sorry. Know. No, I was saying maybe it's an American thing. I don't know. So your wife takes care of you, Joe. <laughs> oh, I don't tend to get sick very often, but she's usually just surprised when I do because I don't tend to. But 
I can just imagine you, Sarah, yelling at your husband for, for blowing his nose a couple of times. <laughs> Stop sniffling. My, my wife has definitely woken up uh, in the morning and she's like, oh, I slept terribly. You were, you know, you were sniffling and blowing your nose all night. And I was like, yeah, I was. I was there. I'm aware. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah stop suffering already. Yeah. I feel like that would change if it was something serious, though. I don't think I'm, I'm you know, completely heartless. <laughs> Walk off the cancer. Yeah. <laughs> Take some Robitussin. Yeah. Rub some dirt on it. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, we're talking about grief. And we're just laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we can do one more and then maybe that's the last one. We've gone through quite a couple. Usually it's only three. Um, we both knew this. I had my miseries. I had my miseries, not hers. She had hers, not mine. The end of hers would be the coming of age of mine. We were setting out on different roads. This cold truth, this terrible traffic regulation. You, madam, to the right. You, sir, to the left. It's just the beginning of the separation, which is death itself. It's just mm -hmm. great divorce. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this reminds me of a, a time, I think I was, I was pregnant with our second child, and there was a lady in our church who was around the same. Um, she, had a, she was pregnant with a, a baby. It was the same stage, you know, stage of development but they found out at 20 weeks that their baby was not going to survive so i can very much understand this feeling of of like we're we're both people we're both expecting a child and yet her path was so completely different from mine um it was really difficult to try and to even see her talk to her and i would wonder like what she was thinking about seeing me and yeah, I mean, it's just such a drastic, a drastic difference with such a similar, um, you know, something that's happening to you. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, you're powerless to stop it. Mm -hmm. That is one of the is one of the weird things about um a spouse dying i think is that um especially one that's been suffering and that kind of stuff so he says the end of her miseries would be the coming of age of mine um that you know her her problems ending you know tonight you know they're uh she's gonna pass away and so the the thing that's making her all the bad things in her life are going to go away um and you know if you're a Christian, you believe in the resurrection, everything else like that. She's going to be like more alive than she's ever been after this in some sense. Um, but Lewis is going to go on with added miseries that he didn't have before with having to deal with living without her. So he has all the miseries that he had before in his just regular life, but now he's got a dead spouse on top of it. And that's, she's not even going to be there to be able to kind of, you know, because by the nature, she's not going to be there to help him through it. Right. 
unlike all of his other miseries. And so he's going to have to do go this particular one alone. Oh yeah. Um, and so I, I do think that that's, that, that is an interesting thing to talk, think about. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons I, I don't want to get a discussion about it, but Mark Driscoll always used to say that like, he hopes that his di- <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. He hopes that his wife dies first so that like, he's the one that goes through that instead of her. Um, and, uh, and I, I always thought that that was bizarre, um, a bizarre thing to say. But but reading reading through Lewis, I think that like there is a uh, sorry, I got it. Ah. Oh boy, is it a fire? Oh, a fire. Yeah. Well, it's uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, it's a totally different town. Why am I getting paid for this? It's uh, it's priority two, so I can I can let this one go. We have plenty of people to stand by. All right. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> okay, where were we? <laughs> oh no, I was just kind of the end of my thought that I always thought that Driscoll's like his statement there was. Um, I always thought it bizarre, but I think I I think I understand it a little bit now. Re- uh, reading Lewis's paragraph there that you know, what he's saying is I've got a bunch of miseries now that are on my shoulders that she's not going to be able to help me with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's an interesting thing about the, uh, the spousal um, relationship. Yeah. And it's amazing how we can, we could still be feeling sorry for ourselves when we're, you know, <laughs> our loved one is the one that's about to die. And yet we're thinking about ourselves and the grief that we're going to have to go through afterwards. It's just interesting. I mean, it's not like it's insignificant. It is, but uh, I don't know. I think in a terminal situation like that, once you've just come to peace with the fact that that you're going to go, I imagine it it is harder for the person staying, for the person still living, mm. for sure. Yeah. Sorry, my brain's a bit frazzled right now. Built <laughs> <laughs> up adrenaline. <laughs> I don't understand. Oh, oh, I know what this. Oh, okay. Yeah, I might want to cut this one short because this is uh, this is this is the 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 air measurement specialty that I'm a part of. So I can go check if they need me. We're, we're about, uh, kind of out of time. Right? <laughs> okay. that's, no that's a good, good, good spot to end it. I think. Yep, I think so. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. All right, Bye-bye. see ya. <laughs>